Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. So I thought long and hard about getting a bumper for this video for this series. A bumper is like that little commercial, like that video that we played before. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that for this series because <laughs> everything I was finding was like inappropriate for church. And so I'm just going to start talking. Is that okay with you guys? All right. Hey, several months ago, uh, I asked for questions that you had regarding life or the Bible or God or about how we live as humans on this planet, and you came up with a lot of questions, and over the last several weeks, we've been talking about those questions, but as I've mentioned, about a third of the questions that we received all had to do with one topic, and that was sexuality, how we are sexual people, how do we talk with those who uh, view this topic differently than us, how do we live on this planet as sexual beings, and so we decided that we are going to try to tackle this in a series that we are titling, Let's Talk About You and Me. It is obviously an important conversation that our culture is having, but one that most contemporary churches aren't having, although that trend is beginning to change. Some of you are nervous about this series, and believe me, I've had a few moments of anxiety as I've been in preparation for this series as well. It's a hard topic. It's a hard topic, really hard topic, because as a society... So much of our time and our energy and our resources are poured into sex, and so much of our identity as humans are defined by it. It's also a hard topic because most people think that they're right about it, and everybody who disagrees with them or views it differently is ignorant or rude or ignorant or, or evil even, perhaps. And, and a lot of people then look at you know what the church has historically taught about what the Bible says on sex, and they just think it screams antiquated, screams ignorant, it screams irrelevant, it screams old-fashioned in what is becoming more and more of a progressive society. You're nervous because you're wondering what I'm going to say because you or someone you know, someone you love dearly, is living or behaving in a way that is counter to what we know or we assume the Bible says is right. So let me just start with this. My role and responsibility as your pastor is to lead you to Jesus. To encourage you in your journey and to coach you to keep going amid a myriad of obstacles that trip us up. My job is not to be the moral police. Now, some of you want to push back on that because you think that it should be my job to be the moral police. But here's why you might think that. In the mid-1900s, the church established fundamental principles to combat the subjective mindset that was rising out of the Romantic era of the 1800s, which, of course, was a response to the Enlightenment of the 1700s, which, of course, developed out of the Industrial Revolution and beginning of urban centers, which grew out of the scientific revolution of the 1500s. The world was changing in dramatic ways. That felt foreign to the church at large. 
And so the world, it would seem, and this is what a lot of pastors and a, and a lot of you know churches were feeling, the world, it seems, was out of control. And so the church had to step in to become a fortress of protection against these rising individualistic and subjective mindsets. The role of the pastor in the middle of the 20th century, the middle 1900s, became the moral police to shun the world and protect its flock from the rising evils of the world. The church is a fortress of protection against the evils of the world. That was the general mentality of a lot of churches. And not not every church, of course, not every pastor, but a lot of churches, that was the pervading mentality of a lot of churches through most of the 19th century. Come here into this place because it's safe in here. Come in here where we don't dress like the evil world. We don't talk like the evil world. We don't behave like the evil world. We don't sin like the evil world. Come in here where it's safe. The main reason you may think that my role should be the moral police is because for the better half of the last hundred years, it was assumed that what it meant to be a Christian was to follow the rules. And here's just a few of the rules that the church mandated that you follow if you can find safety, if you should find safety in a place like this, right? No sex, obviously, right? You have to dress the right way. You don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with those who do, right? Your correct community is important. You don't dance, because that might lead to sex. That's what we were told at the university we went to. Like the, the history of that was like, no, no, it wasn't that. It was, we don't have sex because it might lead to dancing, is what they actually said. Uh, so, I mean, dancing was like a huge evil, right? So, I mean, there's just a ton, ton of rules and none of these are necessarily biblical, but there are rules that they looked at the world and the world was so evil and the world was going astray. And we said, Hey, if you want to find safety, then come in here where you're safe in this place where you're safe. The world is evil. Come in here where you're safe. If you want to know what I mean, a clear example of this is the movie Footloose. Footloose. Thank you. Footloose. Go watch Footloose this afternoon. You know exactly what I'm talking about. To be a Christian meant that you stayed inside the lines and you knew the rules and you followed the rules. That is essentially what it meant to be a Christian for many, many people in the 19th, in the 1900s, in the 20th century. I mentioned last week briefly when we discussed Leviticus that it was never the responsibility of priests to mandate morality. That job belonged to the parents. That's, that's a lesson for all of us parents right there, okay? We are the primary disciples of our kids, not the church. It wasn't the priest's role to disciple your kids. It was the parents' role to disciple their children. It is not my job to present you with a list of rules and expect you to follow them. That is not my job as a pastor. I'm not going to show up at your house and look at your browser history. I'm not going to show up at your... And you're going to thank the Lord. Some of you are saying, thank you, Jesus, that he's not going to show up at my house and look at my browser history. I'm not going to show up your house and, and ask you what shows you've been watching on Netflix. I'm not going to see how full your, your swear jar is, right? Like that, that's not my responsibility as your pastor. The priest didn't walk around Israel knocking on doors, making sure everybody was following the rules. Mediation and morality was the parents' responsibility. It was the parent, responsibility of the parents to teach their children to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The priests were at the temple mediating God's grace, and they were not surprised when the same people came to them day after day needing to offer sacrifices because they had sinned. Paul said that the point of the law was to help us realize that we couldn't keep it. In other words, the point of rules was to make you aware of how constantly you failed to keep the rules. And as God's mercy met you in your failure to grow you towards maturity and to grow you towards faithfulness. And when a group of religious came along claiming and believing that they had followed the rules as they were written, Jesus said, fine, you guys want to play that game? Well, you know what? Your righteous needs needs to surpass all that. Jesus raised the bar higher than even the Pharisees could claim that they could reach. 
God demands perfection, friends. God demands perfection, which none of us are meeting. None of us will ever on this side of eternity meet that, which is why I thank God daily because Jesus graciously gives me his perfect standing before our heavenly father, a standing that I could not earn, a standing that I do not deserve. And so I give God thanks every single day because he has given me his perfect standard. Friends, my job is to introduce you to Jesus, extend to you the same grace and mercy that he has extended to me and to encourage you and usher you closer to him. That is what my job is as your pastor. I don't have the power to change you. And when I say change you, please don't go to like, oh, well, you know, the people who are gay can change to become straight. Well, you know, we're not, that's not what I'm talking about. I say change you, I mean transform you to take your heart that is bent inward and to turn it outward. Only Jesus can do that. I can't do that. I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the power to transform you. I don't have the power to change you. Only Jesus can do that. And so let me introduce you to Jesus. That is my heartbeat. That is what I want to do. That is my role. That is my responsibility. And if that is true, when it comes to interacting with people, we need to keep this in mind. It is God, the Father's job to judge. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict. And it's my job to lovingly lead you to Jesus the one who mediates his faithfulness on our behalf before the Father. My friends, this is so important. We're going to come back to this theme every single week of this conversation because it frames our sexuality discussion and our response to others around this topic. Here's where we're going to come to. This is so important, friends. You need to let this truth burrow into your mind every single day. Reflect on this. Reflect on this. Let it sink deep into you. Every single day, God meets you exactly where you are. Every single day, God meets you exactly where you are and without shame that you should be further than you are on your journey. And if God does that for me, then shouldn't we do that for one another? Take that to heart, friends. Internalize it. Rest. Let it rest in you. We're going to come back to this every single week because it is going to frame the conversation around this whole topic. For so long, we've assumed that following Jesus looks like a fortress where we're safe and we're right and we're on the inside like the Pharisees of the first century. But here's the thing. Jesus came along, right? The, the, The Pharisees were promoting this kind of mentality and then Jesus comes along and he began to embrace sinners. How dare he? Those people who looked and acted nothing like the kind of people that everybody assumed God accepted and God found acceptable. Jesus could see past the masks and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he saw that although their behavior lined up with the law, their hearts did not line up with the law. And he saw that those who acknowledged their sin were contrite, and those who were humble, and their hearts were directed towards him, even at times their behavior wasn't directed towards him. The New Testament model of what it means to follow Jesus then looks something like this. It doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like this this fortress. It looks something more like this, where Jesus is at the center. and, And there are those that are close to him, and there are those that are far from him. But we're all moving in one direction or another. We're all either moving closer to Jesus or moving further away from Jesus. And some are moving towards him and some are moving away from him at different paces and different rates, right? Some are sprinting. Some of the people who are furthest from Jesus are running towards Jesus. And some of the people who are closest to Jesus are just walking away from him very slowly. Some that appear to be closest to Jesus, like this guy in the middle, because they're maybe knowledgeable, they're in positions of authority, they're actually moving away from him. Isn't that interesting? Like the Pharisees of the first century, 
They, they knew everything about the law, and yet they were walking away from God. But some of them who are far from him, because they live maybe questionable lifestyles, like this woman up here in the corner, right? She, she's living a questionable lifestyle, and maybe she's trapped in addiction, or she swears a lot, or she smokes or chews, or she goes with those who do. Her heart is directed towards Jesus. And yeah, she may look like she's far from him, but she is slowly inching her way towards Jesus. And it is my job, and it should be all of our jobs as followers of Jesus. It is our job and privilege to take every person whose heart is directed towards Jesus, even in their current patterns, and not to shame them and not to judge them and point their finger and saying, why aren't you closer to Jesus? You should be closer to Jesus by now. You've been following him for all of three months. You should be further along in your journey. But to embrace them where they are without shame and walk with them towards Jesus. Encourage them on their journey. And then to challenge those who are turned around from Jesus and and walking away to repent and begin a journey with him and towards him. Keep this framework in mind because it is going to be very important. So much, in fact, that we'll come back to it several more times throughout this series on human sexuality. Now, from what I can recall, my parents never talked to me about sex. I've, I've heard that that's actually a pretty common theme among people of my generation that our parents just didn't talk about sex my parents were hippies in the 1960s during the sexual revolution they were like i don't want to talk about my sex life so i guess we're just not going to broach the topic as a family but the silence didn't negate the fact that i am and always have been a sexual person another way of putting it is this just because parents don't talk about sex doesn't mean that sex isn't talked about or thought about, or explored. This is true of all of us, and everybody knows it. Normative human sexual exploration begins for most people as toddlers. We're curious as to how we're made, and what makes us unique, and the way we are, and different from other people. And so we poke, and we prod, and we ask questions of the world. I remember as a four-year-old asking questions, but I didn't have any place to ask those questions right we didn't talk about this in my household so i didn't have anywhere to ask these questions and i don't know i was i was thinking about like my my own sexual history um this week and i don't know why this story came to light it's probably one of those core memories because i remember something that when i was four years old i didn't have anybody to talk to sex about so i asked the four-year-old neighbor girl about sex you know how that went i said well i'm i'm a boy and i have i have this part and what does your part look like and so she pulls down her pants and then i pulled out my pants And we look at each other, and then we pull our pants back up, and we go about our day. Guys, psychologists would tell you that's perfectly normal. It's funny, but it's normal, right? Every psychologist would tell you that's completely normal to ask questions and to ponder our sexuality, which is why more often than not at the dinner table discussion, do you know where our conversation ends up? Ask Ethan. Luke, where does our conversation end up at the dinner table? Ask Luke, okay. Say it. It's not a weird word. You can say it. Sex, right? Yeah. Okay. Or our body parts or how reproduction happens or, I mean, they're like, oh, we're talking about this again. Oh, the conversation went this direction again. Oh, it's like, (laughs) but you know what? If we're not talking about it, guess who's talking about it? The kids are. The school bus is. The, The kids at school. It's happening. When we don't have a safe place to talk about it, the world is all too eager to fill in the gaps of the conversation. 
Disney execs, for example, have recently admitted to adding queerness, an umbrella term for anyone who is not straight, into their animations whenever they can. Whether it be in the background or in the main characters, they're intentionally introducing sexual orientations and behavior that don't fit heterosexual norms. Disney isn't alone in this. We'll talk more about that in later series, but the point for now is that our, worldly, our world is gladly driving the conversation. That's, that's the point of that, right? The world is gladly filling in the gaps of the sexual narrative. Watch any television show or movie in humans relating in sexual ways are prevalent themes, which means that they are providing their viewers with a perspective. They are crafting a narrative about what it means to be sexual beings. Our culture is doing this. We are immersed in a culture that is writing the narrative for what it means to be a sexual being. And friends, we're not going to win the culture war. But we can be wise about how we navigate culture, and we can help those that we're entrusted with navigate culture well as well. Approach any magazine rack full of images or half-naked people, and you'll see that they are speaking messages about body image and what it means to be accepted and acceptable as human beings in our culture drive down the road and you'll pass billboards for strip clubs and you'll pass billboards for adult content stores and kids begin to ask questions i remember luke was like eight years old and we were driving down uh, highway one past the red raven he's like dad what's a gentleman's club and i'm like okay well what are we going to do here luke shame on you for asking a question (laughs) well luke we'll talk about that when you're older you know just shove that to the back of your mind we'll talk about when you're older I mean, what do you do? Well, you know, all right, Luke, let's open the, you open the can of worms. Let's, let's go for it, man. Let's, let's dive into this. Well, here's what happens inside a place like that. And that is not God's design for human sexuality. And so let's talk about God's design, God's vision for human sexuality and how that's a distortion of it. If we're not having the conversations, friends, it doesn't mean that our kids aren't asking the question. It doesn't mean that they're not pursuing answers elsewhere. They are. We all are. We have to be wise about how we go about it. June just came to an end, which in our society has deemed Pride Month, which means our kids are being read a narrative. At sports games and in commercials and on the radio and on billboards, what it means to be a sexual being. Again, the point of all that is to say that our society is gladly driving the conversation. And just because parents and churches don't engage the conversation doesn't mean we as a society, aren't having the conversation. Throughout the series, we're going to talk about scripts. We're going to talk a lot about scripts. A script is the way we come to understand ourselves and our lives. Think of an actor reading from a script. It's the same idea, right? The script tells that actor how they are to think and feel and act and relate to others in the scene. And as people in real life, we're handed scripts all the time. Society is giving us a script, is how we're supposed to feel and act and relate to other people within our lives. We have a choice as to what script we're going to read from. We have, we, have a, we have a script as to, we have a choice as to what script we are going to take our cues as human from. And so one of the main scripts that society is giving us and that our young people are reading today is that sex is everything. I remember when I was like, I don't know, 15, what, full of raging hormones. I didn't have a telephone. I didn't have a phone. But you know what I had? MTV. Spring Break in particular. It was just sexual chaos, right? I mean, if you guys ever seen MTV Spring Break, just complete sexual chaos. Thousands and thousands of people descending upon, I don't know, Miami, right? Descending upon Miami and just like getting drunk all week long and having sex with whoever they want. And then, the tele- and of course, television is uh, broadcasting it for all the world to see. 
But the never spoken but underlying narrative is that, you know, we should just ignore our conscience when it comes to these things. Uh, the sense of higher purpose, we should just ignore all that and just do whatever feels right in the moment and, 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 and live into that hormonal rage that young people have. See, when sex is everything, when sex is what matters most, which is another way of saying, sex is your God. You know, in the world in the New Testament, there was a God for sex. Her name was Aphrodite. Her temple was housed in the Roman city of Ephesus. The temple was the, was the home of 1,000 temple prostitutes that would be available to any Roman citizen to worship Aphrodite through sexual action. It's the ancient equivalent of MTV Spring Break. Thousands of people available to have sex with whoever they want whenever they want it. Aphrodite, in other words, is alive and well today, friends. She is the CEO of a multi-billion dollar global industry. Entertainment, television, marketing, porn, strip clubs, fashion, cosmetics, health, fitness, plastic surgery, Botox, Viagra, just to name a few. Her temples are all over the place. And she's not easy to please. I mean, she demands that we make her sacrifices. We have to give up our innocence. We have to give up our purity, often our body's well-being. And of course, we have to give up our freedom. Because when you turn sex into a god, sex becomes a cruel tyrant. When sex is your god, you have to download porn. When sex is your god, you have to masturbate. You have to sleep with your boyfriend. You have to let him touch you. You have to give in to your body's cravings, even if it rubs up against your conscience, even if it rubs up against your calling to something greater and, and bigger than yourselves, even if you know it's going to steal from your future. You have to cave into it. You have no other choice because you are a slave. It is your God. When sex is everything, when sex is your God, it turns us into animals. We will justify satisfying our sexual appetites in whatever way we want. We are living in a new sexual revolution, a revolution that is on a crusade to liberate our culture from more restrained sexual expression. Margaret Sanger, who is a sex educator, said this, Remove the constraints and prohibitions, which now hinder the release of inner energies, and most of the larger evils of society will perish. Through sex, mankind will attain the great spiritual illumination, which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise. That is out of the mouth of Aphrodite herself. Or put this another way, we're all just animals. And we're all just fueling these cravings and satisfying these urges. And we shouldn't deny taking what we want because through unrestrained sexual exploration, true human freedom, human freedom will be discovered. Her point is essentially that we're all just animals. And if we can just bend to our animal instincts, we will actually become more human which seems really contradictory to me. But this mentality isn't new. When the New Testament was being written, there was this saying from the Corinthians that said this, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Right? The point is that we, we have cravings, right? Yes, we do. Natural cravings, right? We're hungry and good. there's food to fill that craving. That's good. You're thirsty. Well, there's, there's water. There's drink to fill that craving. You're tired? There's sleep. And you have a craving for sex? Well, you should just fuel that craving. It's natural to satisfy the desires in you, so just go at it. But to follow every human instinct and urge and appetite you have is absurdity, friends. It's absurd just to, to take whatever you know you feel and just consume so that that urge goes away, especially when it comes to sex. Appetites usually only balloon slightly larger than our biological purposes, right? So, you know, when you're hungry, you might eat enough for two people, but you don't eat enough for ten people. 
But that's not true of sex. I mean, a, a, a young man who is sexually healthy, man, he could populate a small village in 10 years if he caved into every sexual craving he had. C.S. Lewis actually talks about the absurdity of the sexual instinct by comparing it to food. He says this, You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally odd about the state of the sex instinct among us? There is nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. Sex isn't everything, friends. Horrible things happen when when it becomes our God. We're, we're not animals. And it's absurd to think that we are and that it should. One of the writers in the New Testament eventually came along to challenge the food for the stomach mentality. He, he challenges his audience to live for a higher purpose than just fulfilling their urges, that we're not just a bunch of animals. His point is that unrestrained sexual behavior is dehumanizing not only of the self, but of other people. He tells his audience this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The misuse of our sexuality is dehumanizing, is his point. Not only of the people that we are mistreating, but it's also dehumanizing of ourselves. Paul understood, as do we, that sex isn't merely two bodies coming together, but two whole people coming together. Two whole people with souls and emotions and minds and thoughts and feelings and dreams and hopes and desires and histories and insecurities and futures. Two whole people coming together. And when all that matters is our appetite, it equates to self-gratification and self-pleasure and self-actualization, a selfish endeavor that doesn't consider that there are other humans involved. We're not animals feeding on a carcass. But that's what other people are reduced to when sex becomes selfish. And we let our sexual appetites go unrestrained. He continues, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? I mean, a temple is where God lived, right? A temple is where heaven and earth became one. That's where they met. Paul is urging us to understand that a human isn't just a a collection of urges to be satisfied, but as a being who God resides in, he is elevating our thinking to a higher view of what it means to be human. You're not an animal. You're a human who has been entrusted with the divine. Don't, re- don't reduce yourself to something that is unhuman. Don't strip yourself of your own dignity by just you know, satisfying every sexual craving that you have. You, you are worth more than that. You need a higher view of yourself if that is how you are living your life. Now, one of the challenges is that historically, the church has swung the pendulum to the opposite extreme and provided Christians for a thousand years with a different script. It's not that sex is everything. It's actually that sex is bad. And the church has peddled an angelic script of sorts, that we've denied the the physical and we failed to acknowledge that we are sexual beings. 
You know, I've shared that one of my very first experiences with uh, the teachings of Christianity was at a summer camp. And I distinctly remember, uh, you know, one of my very first uh, counselors came to me and he said, um, we're, we're, you know, talking about sex and the, the girls that we thought were cute at camp. And like, he was like, well, you know, sex is dirty, nasty, vile and wrong. And so make sure to save it for the one that you love. I'm like, oh, thanks. That sounds fun. Okay. For a lot of people, Christians especially, sex is like Voldemort. Voldemort was the villain from Harry Potter. You, you don't, you just, you don't say the name, right? You just don't talk about Voldemort because that gives him power. We just don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. It's just that that thing. We just, we don't talk about it. It's bad. We don't talk about it as good Christians. Church history would agree. Clement of Alexandria in the second century taught that sexual intercourse is a sin unless it is done to beget children. If you find any pleasure in sex, then it is sinful. Origen, another church father, castrated himself because he was convinced that all sexual pleasure was evil. Chrysostom in the 4th century taught that sex was a product of the fall. So it must be evil. It must be sinful. So on the one hand, we're, we're not animals who should just do whatever feels right. On the other hand, we're not angels. Asexual beings who deny that our sexuality is central to what makes us human. But these conflicting messages have grave consequences. I mean, think about a woman who just got married. She's trying to figure out what it means to be true to her new husband, and yet she doesn't want to have sex with it because all she's ever been told is that sex is bad. Or, you know, she's been fed this mentality that sex is bad, but she's had sexual interactions or she's thought about sexual desires or she's acknowledged that she's a sexual being, and so she brings tons of guilt into her new marriage. She's got a million confusing messages about sexuality and obligation and love and him and her and it. And so instead of talking about it and getting it out into the open and dealing with it, she just lets her preconceived stigma on sex win and she just stuffs it in her marriage. She's got this husband, of course, and he's got the animalistic instinct. And the scripts the world has fed him, which has created expectations and images and fragments of stories are floating around in his head about what a woman is and what a woman is supposed to do and how they're supposed to interact with each other in bed. And this woman, he's just married, who's supposed to do that and be that and perform a certain way. She just isn't delivering. And his temptation then is to deal with his frustration through all sorts of other channels and all sorts of other outlets that our society is more than happy to provide him. And it just drives these two people further and further apart. I mean, denying and stuffing and repressing never work because it's a failure to acknowledge what is central to being a human being. But neither just taking what you want like an animal because it fails to acknowledge, well, you're not an animal, first of all. Both of these are dehumanizing. But both of these don't, don't, don't lift us to God's vision for human sexuality. Sex isn't everything, friends, but sex also isn't bad. And so here's what we learn in Scripture. And when you think about what we learn in Scripture, we, we look at Genesis 1, we look at Matthew 19, we look at 1 Corinthians 7, a few other places in Scripture. But here's what we learn about what it means to be a sexual being under God's vision for human sexuality. Here is what we learn in Scripture. Sex was and is God's idea. The Bible tells us that God created the physical world and called it good. And the climax of his work was the making of two naked people 
with male and female genitalia who became husband and wife by their covenant and their sexual activity. They were fused together as one and encouraged to reconnect and be reminded of that bond over and over again through the pleasure of sex and exclusive faithfulness. Not for a night or a year or until the emotions wind down, but for life. This is God's vision for human sexual union and flourishing. All of this, we're told, is very good in the beginning. God looked at this and he said, this is great. This is very good. But here is the stark reality. And this is really, really important to acknowledge. It's really, really important to admit because it levels the ground on the conversations that we're going to be having going forward. None of us live into this. None of us do this faithfully or perfectly. Sexuality for all of us is skewed. We're all broken sexually. And that's important to admit, and that's important to acknowledge, it's important to recognize. We're told that two people, naked people, people, people who, who, who weren't insecure, but they were secure in their identity in God, right? That, that alone breaks all of us. Two, two naked people who, who were unashamed and they could stand before others unashamed. They were intimate and yet they were unashamed. They knew who they were. They were secure in who they were. Two people. Did you know that only 10%, this is such a fascinating statistic, only 10% of the sex industry is targeted at sex between two people? And unfortunately, most of that is tied up in trafficking and prostitution. Most of the sex industry is tied up in creating fantasy that its buyers participate in in isolation. But two people is an important part of this equation. And any time that sexual activity happens with outside the context of two people, then it's, it's a distortion. It's a, it's a skewing of God's design for human sexuality. He created the male and female. Well, we're going to come back to that in a few weeks, so I'm not going to go into great detail here, but we'll talk about this later in the series. In the covenant of marriage, you know the divorce rate has actually gone down in the last 10 years? That's exciting, but do you know why it's gone down? It's actually the lowest point that it's been in 70 years. Do you know why? Nobody's getting married anymore. Only a few people are getting married, which means that sex outside of marriage is normative behavior. That's not God's design for human sexuality either. He wanted two humans to be fused together. This oneness in marriage means that we are bound in all things, but studies show that most married couples share space. Yes, maybe they share a bed, but they are not bound by common vision, common hopes, common dreams, common purpose, common financial planning. The list goes on and on and on. But a lot of couples are just cohabitating they're married by legal definition they're cohabitating but they do not share a common life he wanted them to have sex often as couples age sex life typically wanes young married couples have sex on average every other day if a couple makes it to 10 years it's typically one time per week and 15 percent of married couples never have sex statistics tell us Paul encouraged the Corinthians um, Christians to have sex with their spouse often because he knew the temptations looming in their own society to find it or an expression of it somewhere else outside of the marriage bed. He knew that it was hard to be exclusively faithful, but that sex often with your spouse would help with that. And so he encouraged you to have sex as often as you possibly can if you're married. And then this exclusive faithfulness piece. 80% of men and 60% of women admit to viewing pornography somewhat regularly. 
20% of marriages see at least one incident of infidelity within their life. 20%, one in five marriages will commit adultery. Lust is basically built into the fabric of our society. The sexual narrative of our culture and largely drives the industry that which we're a part of. And so, and then we've already talked about this, this whole component that we are to be for life. We've already talked about divorce, but the Christian divorce rate is no better than the secular divorce rate. And so, show of hands, like, does anybody fit this mold perfectly? I don't. I don't. I don't fit it perfectly. None of us fit it perfectly. No one lives up to God's vision for human sexuality. No one lives perfectly into God's vision for human sexuality. And whenever we deviate from God's intended design for human flourishing, things will get chaotic. We're going to talk all about that next week. Whenever we deviate from God's design for human flourishing, my friends, things get chaotic. So as we prepare to continue our conversation over the next four weeks, know this as a fundamental truth. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one can claim the moral high ground when it comes to sexuality. None of us can claim the moral high ground when it comes to sexuality. We must all start our journey toward one another with an immense amount of humility. And I don't care who you are or what you're dealing with or what your sexual sin is, we must all approach every single person with an immense amount of humility, first removing the logs that are in our eyes before we start pointing out specks in other people. Considering others more important than us and better on a better standing than ourselves. We're all in need of an immense amount of grace and immense amount of mercy. And thankfully, my friends, every single day, God meets you exactly where you are without shame that you should be further along on your journey. I'm going to invite Emily forward and she's going to sing a chorus for us as we reflect on this for just a minute more. Friends, I don't know your story. Maybe your soul is just bleeding right now. You've learned the truth the hard way. You've deviated from God's design for for sexual union and you've experienced the chaos. You've learned the hard way. You're a wreck because of what someone has done to you or what you have done to others. You've ditched your conscience too many times and you've bought the script that you're just an animal who needs feeding. That's all you are. You've listened to the voices who've told you that sex is bad and you feel guilty because that doesn't line up with how you feel. You've attached your soul to another through sex who didn't care for you and they abused you. You gave yourself away too many times to too many people and you feel kind of hollow inside now. You've been stripped down to an object too many times and your self-worth is waning. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. You're bleeding. You're hurting. You've experienced the chaos. You've deviated from God's design for human sexuality and you've experienced the chaos. And you just think, maybe if I could just go back in time, if, if I could have another chance, you know, maybe I could just avoid some of the damage that's been created. And so here's the good news this morning. My friends, sex is powerful, but God is more powerful. Do not underestimate what God can do in your life to put you back together. As a a pastor, I have had a front row seat in watching how people have devastated their lives by the choices they have made, but I have also had a front row seat and experience how the grace and the mercy of God, when it gets a hold of people, can put them back together and restore their lives. 
Paul wraps up his conversation on sex to the Corinthians by saying, You're not your own. You were bought with a price, at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, in the, in the first century, in the city of Corinth, there was a hub, it, it was a hub for sex trafficking all throughout the Roman world. You know, people, people would come into Corinth, and there was a slave market right in the middle of the town, and you could come and you could purchase a, a young girl. And you could do whatever you wanted to her. She was your, she was your property. You could do whatever you wanted with her or to, to her. Women, girls were bought like property and they're sold like property. But if you wanted to, if you wanted to, you could go to that same market and, and you could, you could buy a woman. You could buy a young girl and you could set her free. And you could make her, her you could make her your wife. And that's, that's the imagery that Paul is, 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 is gathering here, conjuring here. Our God is the God who goes down to the slave market. And he, he buys that shattered human who's known nothing but pain of rape and prostitution and shame and abandonment. And he calls her his bride. And he makes her into something beautiful. I mean, without going into further detail, that's my story. That's a lot of our stories. And my invitation to you throughout this series is to join me in journeying towards Jesus. That's all we're really going to do in this series. Right? We're, going to, we're going to journey towards Jesus. The one who bought us out of slavery and no matter where you are and no matter what baggage you may be carrying, my friends, we're going to journey together. So I would encourage you to come back next week as we continue to walk together towards Jesus with this conversation of our sexuality.